Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. It's really great to be with you this morning. And um, it's my privilege this morning to be able to bring you the Word of God. And this morning already we've experienced God's presence. And it's my prayer this morning that we will experience His presence in the Word today. I believe that God has important things to do this morning. So I hope that you're ready. I hope that your hearts are open. And that's my prayer this morning, that Spirit of God, you would speak directly into our hearts this morning. Because Lord, your word is living water to us. Your word is our daily bread every day, Lord. And so that's our prayer this morning. And um, we are back in the book of Numbers, uh, following a short hiatus. Deborah very ably took us back into the book of Numbers last week and into chapter 20. And we started by looking at the rock Uh, in the wilderness and Deborah painted a fantastic prophetic picture of Christ the rock and the living water pouring forth um, in the desert and that was a prophetic picture pointing forward to Jesus and the picture that Paul picks up on when he writes to the Corinthians to say that the rock was Christ with them in the wilderness through all of those years and uh, Deborah spoke from two scriptures that I'd like to go back to today first of all Numbers 20 which is where we're going to start this morning And then secondly, in Exodus 17. And we've got two incidents there that are very similar, but they're very different in other ways. And the reason why I'd like to go back to them this morning is because they are very important events in the history of Israel and very important events in the history of God's people. They become future reference points in the scriptures that God takes us back to when he's talking about having a relationship with each one of us. And that's why it's really important that we get as much as we can out of these things this morning. So I hope you're ready. We're going to start with Numbers 20, and I'm going to be reading the first 13 verses, and this morning I'm reading from the ESV. So starting in verse 1, it says this, And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and the people quarreled with Moses and said, would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines, or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them, And give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. 
These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. So that's the incidents in Numbers 20. And now we're just going to go across to Exodus 17. So if you could just turn with me in your Bibles back to Exodus 17. And I'm going to read the first seven verses from this chapter. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Zin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with things, with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so, and in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? And as your Bibles will probably tell you in your footnotes, that Massa means testing and Meribah means quarreling. And that's why these places were named as such. <clears throat> as I said before, these are two um, incidents that happened for Israel. One was right at the beginning of their wanderings, right at the beginning of their journey. And actually, if you look in your Bibles, just back a couple of chapters, you can see that they just experienced the bread from heaven, the manna from heaven. They'd just gone through the Red Sea. And this happens almost at the outset of our journey. But what's different and distinct about these is that the incident in Numbers 20 happens right at the end of their journey. This is now the second half, if you like, of the book where we've gone through the period of 40 years of wandering and now we're coming into this final preparation where God is preparing his people to go into the promised land. And at the beginning of that, this similar incident happens again. I think the main difference for me is this. In Numbers 20, it is largely God focusing on testing the Israelites on the eve of their coming into the land. At the end of this 40-year period of wandering, he's testing them. And in Exodus 17, at the beginning of this journey, we find the people testing God. And in fact, in Psalm 81 and verse 7, God says this, I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Referring, referring to Numbers 20 in that incident. And in Deuteronomy 6.16, it says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. So in Exodus 17, we have Israel testing God. And in Numbers 20, we have God now testing Israel. And I want to talk about both these things because one of them is a, a good thing and one of them is, is not a good thing. One of them is a bad thing. I'm sure you can guess which it is. It is not good to test God. And that's why it became a command in Deuteronomy 6, verse 16 that we just read. You must not test the Lord your God. And we're going to start with that and look at that first of all. Look at what God was doing 
and why Israel was testing God. So if we pick up in verse 1, the first thing that we see, which is in both incidents, is that there was no water for them to drink. They came to a place called Rephidim, which literally means resting place. So in a place of rest and recuperation, there was no water to be found. And a period of testing usually begins with a challenge in your natural circumstances. Usually when there's a challenge that you're facing in your natural circumstances, it can be a period of testing. It's a question of which kind of testing it's going to be. It's a question of who's going to be testing who in these circumstances. He says in verse 2, Moses says, why do you test the Lord? Now, the keen Bible students amongst us may know that there is an incident when it's good to test the Lord. And that's in the book of Malachi, where God invites Israel to test him because they'd stop bringing their tithes into the storehouse. But the difference there was that God was um, inviting them into an act of faith, that actually it was an act of faith to give God the first fruits. And he was saying, take this act of faith and you will find me faithful. What we have here in Exodus 17 is the opposite of that. It's an act, a test, which is rooted in doubt And what the word literally means, the word is naka, it's a different word to the word used in Malachi, but the word literally means to put something to the test, to prove that it is the substance which you suspect it to be, but it may not be. And that's what Israel was doing to God. They'd they'd come out of the, the, the terrible bondage of Egypt, they'd been rescued in a most dramatic way, and at the beginning of this journey, they want to know if God can be trusted or not, whether he is who he says he is, and they decide to test him in this. But it's testing that's rooted in doubt. You see, they hadn't been overtaken by the Egyptian army, but they'd been overtaken by fear and doubt at this point because they came to a place of rest, they faced their first challenge, and they decided, is God amongst us or not? They wanted to know, is God amongst them or not? The trouble with testing God is that it blinds us to his motive and to his purpose. And that's what we can see uh, in this account. In verse 3, Exodus 17, verse 3, it says this, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Now, that wasn't why God brought them out of Egypt. We know that. That wasn't God's plan. That wasn't his motive at all. But testing God and this doubt and fear that overtaken them caused them to be blind to God's motive and lose sight of God's purposes for them. It was tragic. Seeing God's motive requires faith in the person and not the promise. You see, if we have faith in God's promises more than in him, then when our circumstances change, when things get worse and not better, when the circumstances seem to be contradicting the promises of God, then our faith will rise and fall with our circumstances. But Israel's confidence at this point was in the promise and they'd lost sight because they didn't have faith in the one who promised. And that's what causes you to test the Lord if your faith is in the promises and not the person. God's motive was not for them to die in the desert. In fact, in Exodus 8 verse 1, it says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. So God's motive was to release them from bondage 
in Egypt in order that he could enjoy a relationship because that's what worship is. It's a relationship between creator and creature. And that's what he wanted them to experience. Going forward to the New Testament, Peter looks back on this, this great calling for Israel and for us. And he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, that's out of Egypt, into his marvellous light. God's motive is to bring his people out of darkness into light in order that we may proclaim the excellencies of him through our relationship with him and that our lives would be a testimony to who he is. And that was his purpose here for Israel, to separate them from the other nations, the runt of the litter, the smallest one, to make them great and glorious because of this wonderful relationship of covenant that he wanted to have with them. The other thing that seeing uh, that, that testing God does, it blinds us to God's purpose. And the problem is, is that in order to focus on God's purpose, in order to see God's purpose, we have to focus on God's craftsmanship and not our circumstances. Let me explain what I mean by that. In your circumstances, God is crafting you, he's shaping you, he's changing you, he's moulding you, he's making you into the likeness and maturity of his son Jesus. You're still you, but now you're you reflecting Christ. And that's God's um, plan for all his people, is that in the variety and multitude of expression of our individual personalities, we are becoming more like Jesus and that collectively God's people become a mirror for God, reflecting his glory. And that means for each one of us that individually God is crafting your life and he's using your circumstances to do that. God is making disciples of all nations. That's the mission we were given. Jesus gave us the mission to make disciples of all nations. And making a disciple of someone is making them like Jesus. It's bringing them into the kingdom of God and letting the Holy Spirit shape them and mould them. And that's why Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter 2 and verse 10 that we are God's workmanship. He uses a Greek word there, poema, and it literally means an expression from a creator, like an artistic expression. We get the modern word poem from that because it's about an expression from the heart. God is not crafting our circumstances to suit us but he is crafting us to suit his purposes and if we can see that then we will keep our eyes on God's purposes if we have our eyes purely on our circumstances then we will lose sight of God's purposes in all that happens in our lives and God doesn't want us to do that he doesn't want us to get to that point where we're testing him as Israel was doing here just want you to turn with me to Psalm 95 I mentioned that this becomes a reference point, uh, this incident in the scriptures, and this is a, um, one of those occasions in the Psalms where the psalmist is referring back to this in the, in the words of God, and it tells us something really important about God's motive and his purposes, and it also tells us something about what it means to test God and the dangers of testing God and why we need to avoid doing that. In verse 6 of Psalm 95, just read this with me. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, 
and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. He's referring back to Exodus 17. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, this psalm tells us something really important about testing God because he says in verse seven there that we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. He's talking about that relationship and a trusting relationship between shepherd and sheep. But he says this, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did at Massa. In other words, the opposite of that trusting relationship is a hardening of heart. Testing God indicates that we have a hard heart towards him and that we are not trusting him, that actually we're coming from a place of doubt and fear and that's what's ruling our hearts. And that's why testing is so dangerous when we try to test God in circumstances. The other thing is this. In the next verse, it says, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, our faith in him cannot be contingent upon seeing him work. Let me be really clear about this. Testimonies are good in the house of God. They build our faith. They remind us of who God is and what he does. But your faith cannot be dependent on those. We have to choose to have faith in the person of God, in the person of Jesus Christ in our lives, and our faith cannot be contingent upon seeing him move, cannot be contingent upon him acting in a given situation. And the simple reason is this. God has this ability and this tendency to act in ways that we don't always expect. Sometimes we expect him to act in a certain way, and he just doesn't. He does things... He fulfills his purposes, he's faithful, but sometimes we just don't always see the way it's going to work out. And that's when we need to keep our faith in the person and not be focused on the circumstances. And our faith cannot be contingent upon God acting. And you can see that this hardening of heart meant, again in verse 9, put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. If we have hearts that test the Lord, that come from this place of doubt, then even though we can see God work, even though we can see the testimonies of others, we will still feel the need to put God to the test. And that is not right. It's not what he wants for us. And here's the last thing. In verse 11, it says, Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You know, if we test God, it is not a restful experience. It's not a place of rest and peace. It's a place of striving and of stress, and of fear, and of doubt. And it is not our inheritance. Speaking of inheritance, when Jesus came and began his ministry, he brought with him all the purposes of God, and he took himself into the wilderness, and allowed himself to come into a place of testing. And Satan used the same tricks that he'd always used, the the fear and the doubt that he tried to sow into Jesus, And he said, if you throw yourself off this place, if you're the son of God, why don't you do this? And then God will come and rescue you and you can prove who you are. But Jesus said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, which is the scripture we read in Deuteronomy 6. It's the commandment 
because doing that puts God in a box. Jesus knew that if he did that, he would put God in a box to act in a certain way in his timing. That's the devil's timing and not in the Father's timing. But Jesus said, that's not right. That's not right. God must not act in the way we demand of him. He mustn't come up to our expectations of how he should deal with every situation. He should always act in his own timing. And we need to be those like Abraham who patiently wait. We're not passive, we're faithful, and we get on with what God's told us to do, but we wait for God to act because he is the Lord. So that's testing God. I want to look at Numbers 20 now because this really is God testing Israel. And in Deuteronomy 8 and verse 2, it says this, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now God's saying there that he tests us to know what's in our hearts. God knows what's in our hearts. So who's he talking about? He's talking about us. He was talking about Israel. He wanted them to know what was in their hearts. And that's what he's talking about here. In a time of testing, God will use that to show us what's in our hearts. It exposes and reveals what's in the heart. The last year has been an incredibly difficult time. That's a fact. It's presented so many challenges in the natural to so many of us. But I believe that in this time of testing, God is at work. God is crafting us. God is shaping us. And in a time of testing, he wants to show us what's in our hearts. And I really believe that God wants you to consider today, in the last 12 months, have you seen what's in your heart? Have you allowed the Holy Spirit to open up your heart and show you some of the things that are hidden deep within. See, the heart is such a complex instrument and there's so many layers and God wants to take us deeper and deeper and to do very delicate heart surgery on us. I believe there are many people who, in the last year, God will have brought you back to things that maybe you thought you'd move past, maybe things that you thought you dealt with in the past and you seem to come back to them. I've had that experience in the last year. I found it really uncomfortable sometimes in the last year. God has brought me back to issues that I thought I'd dealt with. But here's the really encouraging thing. Many years ago, the Holy Spirit gave me a picture to help me understand why this happens. And I was driving around a multi-story car park. You know one of those circular ones where you go around in your car and you're starting to feel sick halfway up? And you're coming back round to the same place, but it's ascending and getting higher and higher. And that's like the process of maturity as believers. That's the process of discipleship. That's the process of God making us into his workmanship, is that he will deal with an issue and we mature and we move on and we move higher in God's purposes. But then we come back round to it. But now God wants to deal with it at a different level. It's like a heart surgeon that can only perform surgery in stages, can only go and deal with certain things in certain stages and a series of operations to deal with issues that can be deep-seated, that can be rooted deep in our lives. And because he is so gracious, because he's so loving, our Holy Spirit will say, I'm going to deal with this issue. 
I'm only going to deal with some things this time, but we'll come back around to this. And that's the process of maturity. And I just want to encourage you, especially if you've been walking with the Lord a long time, don't assume always that's dealt with now. I'm not saying you'll have the same problem. What I'm saying is that the same issue can have different layers. And sometimes the Holy Spirit will bring you back to those things to say, I just want to deal with this again, but on a different level now. I want to show you different things because I'm a master craftsman and I'm shaping and molding you and I'm changing you from the inside out. Now, Numbers 20, if we just go back to that in your Bibles, we find at the beginning, again, it's the period of testing, this time God testing Israel, begins with this challenge in the natural. And actually, the challenge is not just that there's no water, but actually, did you notice at the beginning of the chapter, it just says, and Miriam died and was buried there. It just seems like a footnote, doesn't it? But this was a big deal. Miriam died. Miriam the prophetess. We find in the same chapter that Moses and Aaron were told they won't be going into the promised land. Now think of those three individuals and what they meant to the nation of Israel. Miriam represented the prophets, Aaron the priests, Moses the law. This is something major that all three of them would not be going with them into the promised land. And the reason why is because God wanted to bring change. God wanted new leadership and there were, there were reasons for that. But sometimes a period of testing is where God wants to bring significant change and we have to be those that are ready to embrace that change. I believe this last year is such a period where we need to embrace change. We need to ask the Lord, what is of the old that we don't need anymore and what is right? What's the new wineskin going forward? Not just in my life, but for us as God's people. But what did they do? They blamed Moses and they blamed their circumstances. This isn't a place for, to grow things. This isn't a place of water. And sometimes a time of testing, we're tempted to blame maybe our leaders for the lack of change in our own lives. Maybe just our circumstances. It's hard to change with my life and my circumstances. But God is saying, no, I want to lead you into change. And then we find in verse 6, um, it says that um, then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. Now this initial reaction was the right one. And this initial reaction actually shows us that Moses and Aaron feared the Lord. Moses may have deviated from God's instructions and we'll get to that. But his initial reaction was right. He was faced with circumstances. He was faced with moaning people yet again. But his first reaction is to prostrate himself before the Lord. And a time of testing exposes what we fear. Do I fear the Lord above all things? Do I see him as bigger than my circumstances? Bigger than things in the natural that are a challenge to me right now? Sometimes I don't believe we do. Sometimes I think those things creep up on us and they can overtake us with doubt and with fear and we can start to test God. And he wants to bring us back to that place where we know that he is way, way bigger, infinitely bigger than anything our circumstances can throw at us. The next thing is this, in verse 12... Sadly, Moses allows his frustration to get the better of him. 
And that can often happen in a time of testing. God allows us to come into a period of testing and it may not end quickly. We may not see a quick resolution. And in that time when we're getting frustrated and when things seem to drag on for so long, we can get frustrated with God. And what did Moses do was he diverted from God's instruction. Instead of speaking to the rock, he struck it twice in anger. Now that may seem like a small thing, but it wasn't a small thing to God. Because God said, you didn't uphold me as holy. You let your anger get the better of you. You let your frustrations get the better of you. Instead of keeping your eyes on me. And that's why when we go across into the book of Joshua and we see God's um, exhortation to be strong and courageous to the new leadership of Israel, he says, do not diverge to the left or the right. And in a time of testing, we must not diverge to the left or the right. We mustn't allow our frustrations and our fears to allow us to turn to other things. We need to keep our eyes on him. We need to keep our eyes on him because he is our rock. He's the rock that pours forth spiritual water, as Deborah told us last week. You know, I think it's a funny analogy sometimes, a rock in the desert pouring forth spiritual water. Sure, a rock is a firm and secure place, but in the natural, a rock is not necessarily a place where we'll find rest and water. But this is no ordinary rock. This is the spiritual rock, Jesus. I just want you to consider this morning what God is testing in you. What is God testing in you? Is he testing you to see if you will trust him with your health? Maybe with your family's health. Maybe with your family's future. For those parents out there, are you fearful for the future of your children because of everything that's going on and everything that may continue for the next few years? It's time to get our eyes on God. It's time to come back to the rock. It's time to trust him with our families, with our jobs, with our future prospects. Here's a challenge I've had in the last year. When you strip away all of the infrastructure of church life, of fellowship, of worship, and all those good things that God has given us, for a lot of the time, it's just you and God. And the Holy Spirit said to me, am I enough for you? And of course, I gave the Lord, like Peter, almost a rebuke. Of course you are. And he said, no, no. Am I enough for you? And I believe that's the biggest challenge in the last year. Without all those other things, am I enough for you? There's a lot of talk going around about resilience. You know, a lot of people who we respect, who don't know the Lord, talk about being strong and resilient and we'll get through this together. Yeah, that's true. But you know what? Resilience is not an end. As far as God is concerned, that is not his purpose. That's not the end goal here. Resilience is simply a means to an end. The end is dependence. The end is the trusting relationship that the shepherd wants with the sheep. I just want to read you one last scripture from the Psalms. I'm going to ask the, the worship team just to come back now 
because I'd like us just to sing a song as we, as we close. This is in Psalm 81. And again, the psalmist refers back to this testing, where God is testing in Numbers 20, testing the people of Israel. So this is Psalm 81 and verse 7. It says this. In distress you called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. And then going down to verse 16, it says this. Talking about the Lord, it said, But he would feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock. I would satisfy you. Honey from the rock. It's not just water that comes from the rock of Christ, but it's honey. It's water that is sweet, sweet to the taste, sweet to the experience. And that is the water that will satisfy us in all circumstances, even in a period of testing. And I just wanted us to sing a song this morning, just in closing. And it's one of my favourite songs, this song, but it's a song that invites us to trust the Lord. It's a song that invites us into sweet fellowship with him and to be those that allow him to take us into deeper waters, sometimes out of our depth, in order that we will place our trust in him, keep our eyes on him and be strong because he is upholding us. So I just want to encourage you this morning, if the words I've spoken have resounded with you, if the Holy Spirit now even is saying, there are some things I need to deal with in you, then just let him, right in this moment, come and do his heart surgery. Come and put his finger on the things that need to change. Come and comfort you where you need it. Strengthen you where you need it because he's always faithful. Our spiritual rock, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching.